Well, we've been talking about the parables of Christ. We've stayed in Matthew 13 for the better part of three months. And um, we're going to finish today talking about the parable of the kingdom with respect to it being a dragnet. So turn with me over to Matthew 13, verse 47. We're going to read verses 47 through 52. Matthew 13, verse 47 through 52. The title of this message is The Parables of Christ, The Great in Gathering. Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out from the wicked, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse fifty one, have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Lord, help us as we study. Talk to you about four things today. What it means to cast, catch, what you keep and what you chuck, and then the art of calligraphy. Again, I needed a hard C. Talking about scribes there and how important scribes were to the culture of Israel. We'll talk a little bit about what their function was. If there's anything that you should have gotten from all the reading of Matthew 13 to this point is that Jesus is doing everything he can to try to describe the kingdom in terms that people can get. He's used agrarian language. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who went out to sow seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed, but then an evil enemy came and sowed bad seed in the field, and they had to wait until the tares and the wheat grew up. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Though it be the smallest seed, it was planted in the garden, became the biggest tree. He used, he used metaphors in, in, in the kitchen. A woman took leaven and put it in three pecks of flour, and it leavened the entire lump. He used mining references or financial references. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field, a mine, a gold mine in a field. He would have sold everything he had. He used merchant references, commercial, like a man who went out and found this great pearl, and he sold everything he had and bought the pearl. And now he's using fishing references. He's trying to figure out, how can I communicate to y'all what this kingdom is about best? Taking it from every normal facet of life and trying to weave in the truth that he finds in the reality in which he's, these men live, and, and, and let them understand what kingdom is about. And if there's one thing that comes through all of these, it's, it's this, that the kingdom is big and it loves to grow. Isaiah said in chapter 9, and we, we, we recite this passage at Christmas, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And we look at it, 
in a kind of an empirical fashion that truly God's government will continue to grow. But I need to ask you, how is it growing in your life? There should be no end to the increase of government in, in your life if you are a son or daughter of the kingdom. It ought to, to expand from one level to another. You ought not be the same person you were six months ago. You ought to be better, more in love with God, more applying the principles of the kingdom to your life, more obedient, less disobedient, more compliant, more moldable, trying to say the right thing more and more, trying to think the right thing more and more, being a good witness to those who, who are your co-workers, to your family. You ought to be the best Christian in your house. I'm not saying you're competing with other people who are Christians in your house. I'm saying the place where you ought to display your best Christianity is in your house. The people who live with you, who know you best, ought to know you first as the best Christian they ever met. Are you growing in that respect? The kingdom of God ought to never stop increasing because of the increase of his government. There's no end. And what we see in all these parables is that though the kingdom started small, it didn't stay that way. It got big. It kept growing and growing and growing. The mustard seed, it grew to the place where now it was not just providing for the person who planted the seed. It was providing for other life forms. Things came to nest in the branches of the faith that planted the mustard seed down in his or her soil. Here we see the parable is, is one of a dragnet and that the kingdom is supposed to extend from you. That when you cast it out, it's supposed to be that which draws things in that weren't, weren't there previously. That the purpose of your casting is to catch things. But you've got to extend the kingdom in order to bring things in that weren't pre presently there. And how is the kingdom extended from you? How is it growing through you? Oh, in the church we regulate most of kingdom progress to those who are paid to preach. Paid to serve in the church. We say, please do this for me. But God doesn't look at it like that. He says the people that you are employing, that the ordained ministers, those folk are the ones who are to equip you for the purpose of service. They are not to do the service for you. And so your job is to be the minister. And the kingdom is best expressed when every member of the body, every member of the church is trying to figure out where can I cast my net today? How can I influence more people with the gospel today? What can I do with the story of what Jesus has done in my life to, to impact somebody else who has no clue? We are called to be people who allow the kingdom to expand. And Jesus said the kingdom of God may be compared to a dragnet that when it was cast out, it drew in things. And the kingdom needs to be extended from you. And yes, you, you need to preach this gospel. You need to tell your story. You need to put those relationships on the line that seem to be real comfortable and you don't want to mess it up because of the gospel. They're my friend. I don't, I don't want them to stop being my friend. You value the wrong thing. You'd rather have them die without Jesus and be your friend than the other way around. 
You might get him as a friend for 20, 30 years. You preach the gospel to him, you have him forever. Potential is that you will have him forever. Might there be tense moments? Absolutely. But who doesn't have those if you have real friends? Who doesn't? You, you don't have real friends if you don't have tense moments. It's vital that you get this message out there. We are called to minister this gospel. Jesus said his last words before he left, go into all the world and preach this gospel. Making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I told you. And lo, I will be with you even till the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You get the special dispensation in terms of presence. You get a special dispensation of the presence of God when you go and preach his gospel. When you tell people who don't know anything about Jesus about how they need to comply. Because God said, when you go out and do this, I want you to know, I will be with you when you do it. Now, he's with you every moment if you love him. Every moment. And those of you who don't love him, he's watching over your life, and that's how you got here. Amen. I mean, he is so good. He's, he's, he is with you even though you are not with him. You cannot be somebody, though they can be with you. It's like he's following you at a pace of about 20, 20 paces. You're not with him, but he's with you. And he's, he made sure that bus didn't hit you yesterday. He made sure you didn't get the disease that would knock you out. I mean, he has been with you. I can tell you so many times now in retrospect, how many times God was with me when I was a teenager. While I was doing my dirt, he was still with me. And he was helping me in delivery. Oh, gosh. It is amazing what he had to put up with to, to, to tolerate me in his presence. And then to allow me to repent in the midst of it without judging me for everything I'd done because Jesus had already taken my judgment. It's amazing. It's amazing. But there is a special dispensation of his presence when you go out to preach his message. He said, when you go out to talk to people about me, I'll be with you in a unique way. And if you want the presence of God, do that. You want that tingly feel, that goosebumpy moment, that, oh, Jesus, I sense your presence moment. Do that. Go preach this gospel to somebody. Don't just wait for Sunday morning and allow the worship team to stimulate you in such a way that all of a sudden the song just brings you to a new way and, and you just feel it. Don't let that be your only moment or your devotional life. Let, let Jesus be manifest in your ministry to somebody. We've got we to extend the kingdom. We've got to extend it. People out there need Jesus. They don't know how to live. They don't know how to be good fathers, good mothers, good husbands, good wives, good employees, good friends. They don't know it all. They're just making it up as they go. And without the information necessary to make great decisions, they will make bad ones. And as they make it up, they will destroy it. Whatever they create, they will destroy with their own hands because they don't know what they are doing. And you who are supposed to know, you got a manual. you got a Bible. You are struggling as it is. What about people who don't even know? It's hard to live this life even when you know what to do. Oh, my goodness. When you don't know, then you don't even know how to fix what you don't know because you don't know. I mean, you are doubly handicapped mentally. Clueless upon clueless. 
People need to know. I beg you, catch the net. Now, everything you catch might not be what you want to keep. I get that. Now, a drag net is, is unusual in its, its construction. It's not the kind of net that you would use, say, on the end of a pole to catch a fish or the net you just throw out as an individual bone odor and then bring it in. It actually had weights on the bottom and floats on the top, and it was very large. And generally, you'd need a couple of boats in the Sea of Galilee in order to make this thing work. One boat tied one end of the net, the other boat tied the other end on it, and then you had fishermen that would then row into shore and then slowly draw the net in. And it would take everything that it got from the bottom, middle, and top. Now, sometimes you got fish you, you, you really didn't, didn't want to keep. In our society, um, the fish that you, you don't want to eat is something like carp. Carp, really, you, you, carp are nasty fish. <laughs> Just nasty fish. And, 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 and they're not worth eating. Now, if, if you're starving, if you're really, really hungry, you eat carp. But if you have your choice, you throw those things back. For a number of reasons. They're oily, and they, they're strong because they're bottom feeders. And then on top of that, carp have this unique physical makeup. Their anatomy just isn't conducive to, to pulling the flesh apart and eating because most fish have a spine that has a row of what we would call ribs, but the ribs are many depending upon the, the size of the fish. One row, they go like this all along the length of the fish. And generally when you fillet it, you can cut to the bottom of the bone or the other side of the bone and get the fillet out. And the, the, the ribs are just one row. Well, carp are different. There are multiple layers of bone that extend from the spine. And so they call them intermuscular bone. So when you're trying to, to clean a carp, take all the scales off, and then try to fillet it so you can... It takes anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour just to clean one fish. Where you could take a bluegill or a catfish and do it in about 15 minutes if you know what you're doing. So considering the fact that it doesn't taste great and that it takes an hour to clean it, Throw it back. <laughs> Throw it back. If you can eat anything else, do it. Sometimes you catch things when you're using a dragnet you don't want to keep. But the kingdom catches everything. And this is the beauty of the kingdom. Listen, when you understand something about the kingdom, just a little bit, that God loves you, number one. Number two, he's got a really good idea about how you ought to live best. And he's in this thing for your benefit. And he wants you to, to, to prosper. He wants you to be in good health. He wants you to, to, to be a, the best version of you you've ever been. He wants your marriage to work. He wants your family to work. He wants your employment to really benefit you and you prosper in it and rise up the corporate ladder. When you realize how much God has sacrificed so that you can be what you need to be and fulfill the purpose for which he's placed you on the planet, who, who, who doesn't think logically that's a good idea to be in this kingdom thing? I mean, it's really, really good, and it attracts a lot of people. And there are people who are cherry-picking parts of the kingdom they want without taking the whole because it's so good. So there are people who take the ideas about what it means to be diligent and work hard that are kingdom-oriented. That came from God. And they work hard and do it, and they do it without him. And yet they prosper. The Lord blesses them. They take bits and pieces. They don't want it all, but so much of the kingdom... Is, is, is attractive that you get all kind of people that get gathered into the net. But then it's a responsibility of the folks who are doing the fishing to say, these are the requirements if you want to stay. 
If you want to be thrown back, then you, 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 we can make that possible for you, but we'd rather have you stay. And if you want to, if you want to be a keeper, you want to be somebody that God says, I can use. And we're talking about on two levels now. We're talking about being a keeper in that you have gotten right with God and you love him and your name is, is, is in, inscribed in the book of life and you got your ticket stamped to glory. That's a wonderful thing. And, and I'm happy for you if you got it because forever you will live with him in bliss and you have escaped the judgments for which you should, you, you, you deserve them. You will escape the judgments of hell. It is a good thing. Even when you're having a bad day, you just need to remind yourself, I am not going to hell. That puts everything in perspective. It's a good thing when you are destined for glory. So you are in, in the good pot. You've been put in a good container. Hallelujah. But there is so much more to the kingdom than just getting on the train to go to heaven. So then there is, well, now that I'm here, and I've probably got another 50, 60, 70, 80 years left, what do I do? And then there are, are, there, there's a container of, okay, let's, the, the fisherman has to then distinguish between who's usable and who's not, who can fit and who can't. And it takes discerning fishermen to be able to tell which ones he ought to keep and which ones he shouldn't. You and I fishing on the Sea of Galilee wouldn't know. But Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they knew. They understood. They made their living doing this. And Jesus says... When the fishermen began to put some in the container and others not, this is, was a sign of what will happen at the end of the age, that the angels of God will be dispatched to separate those who are legit from those who aren't. And those who aren't will suffer, and those who are will be in the right kind of container where they can experience the purpose for which God created them. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things, what happens at the end. And I rarely talk about this because I've studied, I've studied it a lot. And I don't know what's going to happen. I live in the environment of, of knowing what my Bible says when, it says when it says mysterious things and gives creatures that you've never heard of before. And, and, and things occur that, that are image-oriented and filled with pictures, but they actually mean something different than what you're reading and it's, it's contextual in that the writer is writing to a group of people that it means a lot to, but it may not mean a whole lot to us if we don't understand why the writer was writing it. And so I'm reading it, and I understand what it means to be pre-trip, post-trip. I know what it means to be amel, millennial. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? A millennialist, a, a thousand-year period, post. I understand all of that. And I don't know how it's going to all wind up. I do know this. That it's going to wind up with us being in his presence. And we're going to love him. And he's going to fix everything that's wrong. That I know to be true. I'm not just quite sure when or how. But I do know this. That God is interested in the planet. And there is this sense that he is so uninterested in the planet. That he is going to at some point take us out. Because he's going to destroy this thing. Well he's going to remake it at some point. Yes. Peter says he's going to, to, to let fire consume the earth. No more water, but fire. The judgment that's coming is not one of deluge like in the days of Noah, but one of intense fire that burns up the entire earth. I don't know what that feels like or looks like, but it's uncomfortable. <laughs> After finishing, there's going to be a refining. 
And that we get to come back here. Because we are people of earth. Now you say, well, what happened to heaven? Well, yeah, there's heaven. I get that. But it will be kind of like when Adam and Eve got to walk with God. There were distinct places between heaven and earth. But there was no separation. Distinction, no separation. It's as if you were able to go from one womb to another. You go into the heavenlies or you stay on earth. There's a separation now because the earth is too messed up. Sin separated us from God. And we can't fellowship like that in in unbroken communion. And so there's a distinction between our flesh and what is here on the earth from heaven. But when God fixes everything, it's one thing. Heaven still exists, but there will be no, no separation between the two. Yet there will be a distinction in location. And so when we get caught up in the air to meet him, like it says in, in Thessalonians, that, that doesn't mean that we leave forever. I believe it means we get caught up in the air because he's coming back and everybody needs to see him and everybody who's on the planet needs to see who is with him. And if we stay here, they can't see. So when we go up, they will see. But after we go up, we come back. Otherwise, why would Jesus descend He's descending in order to retain and regain something that he purchased. He purchased not only you, but the earth with his blood. He's not abandoning this place. He's trying to redeem it. Now, whether that happens pre-trib, (laughs) post-trib, I'm not quite sure. But I do know this, that it is within, fully within God's character to allow us to go through stuff. Does he ever deliver you out of your circumstances? I mean, maybe once out of a hundred, huh? Most of the time, you got to go where? Through. Through. That is his standard operating procedure, to go through. I wish he would deliver me from. That would be great. I love the theology that all the folks who believe in the rapture, we God, I love it. I think it's great. I wish I I could believe it. I want to believe that because I don't like what I have to go through. But that doesn't mean the rapture doesn't happen. It just means that I don't believe we leave forever, but that we stay. Now, here, we, here we, we see something about what Jesus says the angels do. That they, they don't take the good out. They take the bad out. The good remain. Jesus said in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, blah, blah, blah. He said, I tell you, in, in these last days, it'll be as if there's a woman sleeping a woman in, in the kitchen doing stuff and, and, and another one doing something else and one will be taken and one will remain. Two will be in bed, one will be taken, one will remain. There's a sense that God has some remaining, not just some taking. And that if you look about what happened to Noah, everybody else who wasn't right was taken. Noah remained. Now, that gives you some idea about how I lean. But it also ought to give you an idea with respect to concentration, how important I think it is that the church concentrate on this because how many times have you heard me say this? Once. Once. In about, I do it about every 10 years. About every 10 years. Why? Because folks split over this. What folk believe about what's going to happen? And none of us know. None of us know. So I lean real hard this way. But it's so small in the grand scheme of how we need to live because whatever he's going to do is probably going to surprise us all anyway. 
And so I'd rather do what I know. Live right every day and concentrate on equipping you to live on the planet rather than thinking about what do I need to do to save up as much as possible in an underground cavern so that I can prepare for the tribulation. (laughs) Are you hearing me? All right. So Jesus is talking about the end of the age. But if you look at it in the original Greek, the word angels is also the word messenger. So when somebody was delivering a message, they would call him an angelos. So your FedEx guy would be called an angelos. Are you listening to me? So it's possible that Jesus could have two meanings, not only the end of the age, but the end of that age. Meaning that the disciples and the Jewish people who had worshipped in terms of sacrifice at the temple weren't going to get to do that anymore. And everything you read in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 about what the end of the age is, Jesus is speaking to a specific group of people at that time about what's going to happen in their generation. Now, could, he have re- could it have relevance, relevance to where we are today or later? Yeah, but don't watch TV and say, oh, Jesus is coming back. Don't listen to what's happening in the Middle East and, and try to figure out when he's coming. Folk in the Middle East fight every two years. <laughs> They're at war every two years, and everybody, every time something comes up, oh, it's the end. This is a sign of the end times. And please don't interpret, <laughs> don't use bad, really bad exegetical skills, which is interpretation of Scripture, to, to say that somehow grasshoppers in, in the vision of what's happening in the plague and the, in, in the end times that you see in the book of Revelation are somehow Black Hawk helicopters. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not smart. That's not good. That's really bad interpretation of Scripture. But there are people who do that. They do that. So be very careful about looking at where we are in this last day and forgetting that there have been a lot of last days. There have been a lot of them since Jesus said it. There was a last day concerning how the Jews sacrificed at the temple when when Trajan came from Rome and ransacked all of Jerusalem. Jesus said in Matthew 24, I want you to know not a stone will be left upon another in the city. Pray that your flight will not be in winter because at the end of time, when I return, when I come in my power, and Jesus is not just talking sometimes about his bodily return. Jesus comes a lot. He comes to your life and your devotional life. He comes in our services. There's a sense that sometimes he comes without it needing to be bodily. And so we always want to hang on this when he returns. And he said, I'm coming soon. Soon. 2,000 years is not soon. That's not soon. So maybe he was talking to the generation about what was going to happen. And from that moment when the Romans ransacked Jerusalem, the Jews had an end of an age where they were able to sacrifice. And they never were able to do it again. They haven't sacrificed at their temple in 2,000 years. That end, that age ended. Now, does it have some relevance to where we are? Probably. I just don't, I can't figure it all out. And I study my Bible a lot. And I think anybody who says they have, have figured it out, it's kind of like what, what the great philosopher, I think it was Plato, said. Everybody asked, why are you so wise? He said, I'm so wise because I don't know nothing. And I know it. <laughs> I know what I don't know. 
I, there's a lot of stuff I don't get. And what I don't get, I'm not trying to tell you that I act like I do know. So when we talk about the relevance that it had to that generation, sure enough, maybe God gives some insight into what people ought to do in the church with respect to having the dragnet pulled in and then the messengers from that particular congregation or the church overall being able to have the privilege of deciding what they keep and what they don't. That doesn't mean people can't continue to come to church, but it does mean membership is a privilege. You can't keep committing adultery on your wife and, and call yourself a member of a church. No, no, no. Doesn't mean you can't come. Doesn't mean we won't continue to love you. But you, have, you, you, you can't have the privileges of being a member while you're continuing to live in sin. You are the reason everybody else out there who doesn't love Jesus won't come. And we have to preserve the integrity of what a believer is supposed to be without denying the fact that people struggle and still love them through it. But let them know there are lines that Christ has drawn, not us. That if you find your brother in sin, go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, take another. If he doesn't listen to you then, tell it to the church. It doesn't mean you air everybody's business to all of the church. You just simply air it to the people in the church who are relevant to helping the person get right. God cares about folk, but he has rules. And sometimes we have to say, that fish won't work. This one stays, you, you can't. You cannot enjoy the privilege of membership in the kingdom because you are living like a sinner. Yet we love you and we will chase you down telling you to do one thing all the time. Repent. 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 Please repent. 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 We got one message for you. Repent. That's it. I'm not. You forget, no, just repent. I'm not looking for your money for the missions. I'm not looking for your help for the orphans. I just want you to repent. That's all I want. You repent. Get right. Then we'll figure out all the other stuff messengers that's what i am get the privilege of government not just of preaching but of deciding how you build church and then there's also the greater distinction of how you work with people and what kind of culture you build and we work really really hard at at building a culture of excellence an atmosphere of holiness and purity and trust we work hard at that from the attendance in the parking lot to our children's ministry to our youth ministry, one message. We love God with all of our heart and we try to make him known with relevance and integrity to everybody we understand. And when you walk into our presence, there ought to be something of the kingdom that you experience before we ever say a word. The atmosphere ought to preach to you about reconciliation and our intentionality about relationships and what it means to serve God with integrity. All that ought to shout at you before we ever say a word. We work hard at that. Now, there are folks who come in with great gifting. They get dragged in the net. But they don't have any of that. And so we say, you can't fit in this container yet. Even though you can sing, <laughs> you're amazing. You got runs that I, I haven't heard Mariah do. I get that. <laughs> but you will sit right there and you will get character in your life before you ever come on this stage. Because we have a standard. You can't come in this container until you get this. We get the privilege of understanding and discerning between fish we use and fish we don't. This is how good government functions in the church, yet loving everybody unconditionally. Lastly, he asks the disciples, he asks them, do you understand this? And they say, yep, I think they were lying. <laughs> they just weren't that smart. They weren't that smart. They just said 15 minutes ago, what are you talking about? He just gave the parable of the sower. 
They said, we don't understand anything you're saying. And then he told them, well, if you don't, you don't get this, you don't get anything I say. And so I imagine they just said, okay, after six more parables, yes. <laughs> yes, a- absolutely. And then he says this, okay, if you get this, know this, that every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom gets the pr- privilege of being a leader, like a father in a household, and he brings out of his treasure new and old. Now, this seems to be disconnected because the, the English language doesn't nearly translate as well as the Greek. The word for bring in the Greek is ekbalo, and it means not just to bring to, but to cast out. So the, the sense is that the, the, the scribe, and the scribe was the one who was a, a copier. He would write down all the scriptures so that somebody would have a fresh book to read. And they were very knowledgeable about chapter and verse. And so everybody looked to a scribe to help understand the scriptures. And the scribe would write. And he said, this scribe who we trust to give us information about what's in the scriptures, when he becomes a disciple, he becomes like the head of a household, able to bring out of his treasure stuff that shouldn't be there and make sure that there is stuff that is new that isn't placed in. So there are traditions, and many of you all have grown up with, and you're comfortable with them, how mom and daddy did stuff, or how you learned to be a husband or a father or a friend, or, and all of a sudden you realize, wait, that's not in the Bible. And you get the privilege of understanding when you become a disciple of knowing, even though that tradition is comfortable, it's not scriptural. So I take that out and I leave what remains in. That's the only way this passage, this last part, fits with the rest because everything about what the angels did, if you will, the messengers, was to separate that, was, that which was usable from that which was not. And so a good scribe who is a disciple is able then to separate all of his experience from, with scriptural input so that he doesn't bring in things that seem to be traditionally good because they've always been done that way and bring them in even though they aren't scriptural. He's able to say, no, I'm going to separate that from my experience and let this remain. Also, you're not, you're not seduced by new winds of doctrine that come about God's doing this over here and doing that over there. Listen, I don't, I don't do New Year's re- resolutions, not because I don't like them, because I don't need them. God's been telling me the same thing every year. <laughs> Build my church Make disciples, equip leaders, and win my city. That's all he tells me. And so that was 2000. That was, that was 1982, and this is 2014. I hear the same message. Somebody comes with it. God's prophetically speaking this over here and doing that there. And then say, okay, I'm glad. Good. He told me one thing, and I'm still doing it. So you're able to not be taken away by something that's new and fresh, though it might be fun. And you're able to stay the course to what God called you to do.